Words on Whiskey is proudly brought to you by Irish Whiskey Magazine, the independent publication dedicated to sharing authentic insights into the exciting world that is Irish Whiskey. Please support our podcast and magazine by visiting irishwhiskeymagazine.com. Good evening, everybody. You're all very welcome to Words on Whiskey, episode 33. We have an exciting show this week, a real privilege to have two wonderful gentlemen here that have told a wonderful story and have lots of wonderful stories to share with us. So we're bringing in Greg Schwartz and Jim McCune. Good evening, gentlemen. Good evening, sir. How are you? Hello, everybody. So we're Greg Greg from the States and Jim, you're in Ireland at the moment. That's right. Firstly, you're both very welcome. Thank you for doing us the honour and and giving us the privilege of... uh, being guests on our show, I know there's a huge fan base over here in Ireland for Scotch and for what you've done in Brooklady particularly. And Greg, of course, you've brought this to life in a fantastic movie. Just tell us a little bit about yourself, Greg, first, a little bit about your background and how an American ended up in Islay making a movie about Scotch. <laughs> I got tricked. I was <laughs> tricked. No, <laughs> um, no I, uh, I've... Uh, I, I used to, I was an exchange student in Scotland uh, when I was in college and I was uh, actually lived in Ireland for a while as well. Um, but the, the film really came together when uh, my wife and I went to Scotland for our 10th anniversary. Uh, my wife is Irish, but had never been to Scotland before. So uh, we, uh, we went on a tour and the idea started kind of taking root then. I'd been drinking whiskey for years, but I'd only ever been on the receiving end. This is when I wanted to start exploring the crafting end of it. And I was very, very fortunate that we made a wish list of who we wanted and got every single one of them, to be honest with you, but the top of the wish list was Jim. Yeah, I mean, it's quite an incredible list of people that you managed to get. Was there any intrepidation, any sense of suspicion of this American coming over and wanting to make a film about Islay or you were treated with open arms? Not not from my side, no. I mean, every, every, we were... We were we got you know immediate yeses from everybody, and uh, everyone was so gracious and welcoming on Isla and, uh, and on mainland Scotland as well. And you were saying your your father-in-law is a little bit at odds with you for not having made an Irish whiskey movie first. <laughs> yes. <laughs> well, look, I mean, you've got some fantastic names there. You, you know, you've got Lachlan McIntyre, Chris Leggett, Mark Rainier. You had Charles McLean on the. Obviously, you have Jim as well, Neil Ridley. Rachel, Becky Paskin, all the big names are, are in this movie. Uh, was it a difficult task to actually convince them to, to come on it? No, no. Um, I mean, here, once, the, the truth is, once once Jim was on board, we had a, a credibility, and I think it made it easier to get everyone else. And I'm not just yeah. saying that because Jim's here. I, uh, but, uh, I mean, honestly, the only the only distiller we wanted to talk to who we didn't get to was, was – um, Dr. Bill Lumsden, and he was out of the country while we were shooting the film. That was the only person we didn't get to include. But it's not a branded movie, and if anybody hasn't seen the movie, the movie is called The Water of Life, a whiskey film. And uh, I've seen quite a few whiskey movies, and I have to say this one stands out as being one that really gets to the essence of, of what whiskey can mean for individuals and for a nation and for small communities and I think you really got to the hub of that beautifully shot without being over cinematic and over but I think it, it's a real credit to you so I mean how long did it take to start putting it together and actually see it through to fruition 
Oh, well, um, two and a half years. I mean, we, we, we shot most of the film about two years ago, but we started for about six months putting it together before that. And then, I mean, the film, to be honest with you, though, the film has been done for the last seven months. We were waiting for the world to start turning again. And when that became yeah. apparent that that wasn't going to happen right away, we decided to take matters into our own hands. So obviously COVID has had a, a huge impact on, on the release of it. I know you did the, this release, the Burns Week release, where you show the movie for a week. Yeah, I think that was ending tonight, or it's ended now. It ends tonight. We have a lot of guests on, actually, from all over the world, with people from Tasmania, Italy, Ireland, states, all over. So, if anybody has any questions they'd like to put, please do enter them in here. We'd be delighted to put them to either Jim or Greg. So, I suppose we'll introduce. Doesn't need introduction, but Jim. Good evening. Hi. Welcome. Good evening, sir. Nice to see you guys, both Greg and Sergio. This is a real pleasure for me. Well, I take it the check is in the post. Okay. Yeah, small <laughs> post. I think COVID got to it. You should have received it by now. But well, tell me actually, you've been on Island now, and of course the second festival being cancelled. What's the impact for the locals there with COVID? How are people coping? We are blessed because we are on an island. And they're very strict on the ferries, and then there's one uh, two flights a day in from Glasgow. So everybody's paying attention, you know. So I'm taking it very, very seriously because, as you can imagine, if it came on to an island, we're really in trouble. And yeah. so everybody's taking every precaution and wearing masks and all that sort of stuff. Uh, yeah, so far, I'm touching wood, you know. So far, we've had no cases, but as I say, I'm touching wood. Economic impact of not having the tourists this year. Obviously, that's a uh, huge. Uh, yeah, that's just one of these things. Probably a lot of the people couldn't afford to come anyway. If they weren't working, they wouldn't have the money to come in the first place. You know, yeah. and you know, the whiskey will still be sold as time goes on. In fact, the sales of whiskey are quite high because people are in a state of nervousness and anxiety. So the only thing that works there is a decent dram. You know, you sit down with a good dram. I don't mean to get drunk, but a nice glass of a Freud or a nice glass of a bag or whatever, you know, the single malt people will, they will not stop drinking, that's for sure. I'm going to pick my drink here and I have the Brooklady Organic, which... Uh, it's called Orgasmic, sorry, you've named orgasmic, it Orgasmic, yeah. <laughs> I got the one with the typo on it. I don't know what, Greg, what are you drinking? Like, say you I'm drinking a, a port. Port Charlotte. Yeah, very nice. And, and Jim, you're being well behaved, are you? Yes, I'm driving, so... Uh, <clears throat> <laughs> water. I'll have a couple of drums later, you know. Okay, well, slant about. We're on island, you know. It's the same rule of time. You don't drink and drive. And because you're on island with three policemen, you still adhere to the law, you know what I mean? Good. I'm glad to hear that. I'm glad to hear that. Well, look, I think the best way to start off would probably to show a clip from the a trailer from the movie, and we'll roll that there now and give people an indication of what they're, they've either seen or are missing. So. My mum used to say, did you go to school today? I said, yep. She said, come here. And she's smelling. I know. You've been in that damn distillery again. Bed. No dinner. Ancient, natural, old, pure. The blood of one small nation. Absolutely. In the mid-1970s, Scotch whiskey ceased to be fashionable. When it became dad's drink, I... There was just a massive bust. I've never once met anyone who goes, 
and there's no emotion behind it. If you do that, God, go and drink vodka. Even though I'm a scientist, it's actually much, much more of an art. Looking at your body, I said someday I would love to make whiskey at this time. The place was falling apart. There was a sign. It sort of encompasses the whole whiskey industry at the time. Exclamation. And I can remember thinking, I've got to do something about it. I got a phone call from the chairman of Prochladi. I said, the answer is yes. He said, really? Very different people with different background and experience who all came together with the same goal of bringing this distillery back to life. The most unlikely partnership in the history of whiskey. It's, it's hysterical. Jim reveled in the freedom that he was given, sometimes a little too much. I could make virtually what I wanted. There's a Brook Laddie every week, wasn't it? There's probably too many. I said, why are you doing this? He looked at me with these wild eyes and said, because we can. And because we're having fun. There aren't as many true mavericks anymore. Learning quite literally from scratch. Mike and I had many bottles. We detonated. Yeah, initially, it cost me a lot. But we fled it. We touched the void. Oh, my God. How far can we go, you know? There you go. It's a phenomenal movie. If you can watch that movie and not feel something, then uh, I don't know. I don't know. I mean, it really pulls at certain points. It really pulls at the heartstrings, and other times it just makes you feel so joyous. It's unbelievable. From that point of view, the movie has been a fantastic piece of work. So again, Greg, I know it's 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 part of the the team that you work with. Could you tell us a little bit about Blacksmith and Jones, the movie producing company? Uh, well, Blacksmith and Jones is is myself and my business partner uh, Trevor Jones, our producer, and uh, that it's a two person company at this point. Uh, and you know, we've been making films together for twelve years now. And uh, this is this is our first feature documentary. This is this is the biggest thing we've undertaken, at least just us together. I mean, we've done co productions with other companies that where we were part of a much bigger thing, but uh, this was the, our the biggest thing we've done on our own. And um, you know, we both kind of came at this from a, we both love whiskey. Um, and, uh, you know, <laughs> just kind of grew from there, you know. And yeah. I don't think you could make this movie, certainly wouldn't be the quality real whiskey lovers. Definitely comes through. So there were a lot of people involved. There was Trevor Jones, Brittany Curran was what produced Richard Palema, Robert Taylor and Rob Chatlin were editors. I'm sure I've left some people out, but it wasn't a massive team. No, I mean, documentaries tend to have small crews anyway. And, you know, I, I will tell you one of the things uh, that we said from the get go was that we wanted the film to be more like uh, the Chef's Table series than about it, than a traveling type film. You know, we didn't yeah. want to do a, a travelogue. There, there's been loads of those and they're great. Um, but that's just not we, we wanted to focus on people. We wanted to tell people stories and focus on craftsmanship. And, you know, we were actually lucky. Uh, one of our editors, uh, Robert Taylor, actually works for the Chef's Table. And uh, we actually got a lot of early from post advice on uh, 
from them as well. And then, and then other, other editor, Rob Chatlin is, is an absolute 10th degree black belt in whiskey, uh, who (laughs) he has an entire cupboard in his house full of black art. (laughs) That's a big collection. That's a big collection. Yeah. He has, his whiskey collection is ridiculous. I mean, mine's ridiculous, but his is ridiculous, sir. More ridiculous. Yeah. Excellent. (laughs) Well, Jim, uh, just going, maybe touching on your, on your childhood growing up in, in Isle, we know you're a bit of a truant in school. Yeah, yeah, that was uh, a heck of a bastardy story. <clears throat> I was born in uh, Main Street, Bumore. You've never been there, but Greg's been there, where the Royal Bank of Scotland is now. I can assure you, when I was born there, there was not a bank. Uh, there was four families <laughs> sharing uh, one house and four different sections. Uh, and to get to school, I had to go past the distillery every day. And I used to look in the window to the malt bands. And it was the aroma that got me fixed. There's the smell of the green malt getting turned. There's the smell of human sweat, the smell of whiskey from the men's breath, and the smell of pipe tobacco. It was like an olfactory orgasm for a boy of my age, you know what I mean? So I wanted to be a whiskey-drinking, pipe-smoking, malt-turning guy. So (laughs) I used to go in sometimes and sweep the floors in the malt bars and not go to school. But uh, as I say, when I went home, my mother could smell the alcohol, the smoke, and the whole lot. So I got a whole backside and sent to bed uh, pretty quickly. But yeah, it was, it was good. When you live on a whiskey island, everybody you know is working or assisting in the distilleries, and it's absolutely fantastic. Yeah. Have you ever it, seen yourself do anything else, Jim? Well, did it ever cross your mind to leave the island to do anything else? Yeah, when I was when I left school, I wanted to be join the military, so I wanted to join the Royal Corps of Signals, and uh, so I went away to Glasgow and I went to the recruiting office and I signed up. Uh, it was uh, going to be a twelve year uh, in the army. I was only sixteen at the time, boy soldier, and I came back home and uh, I said to my grandmother Kate. He said, that's me, I'm going to sign up for 12 years. And she totally broke down and cried her eyes out. And she's holding me as tight as she can. And she says, if you go, I'll not be here when you come back. Don't go. So that's a tough one to go off, isn't it? She says, I won't be here. I'll break my heart. This is my grandmother, Kate. Don't go. So I turned down the invitation to join the Royal Corps of Signals and I started work at Beaumont Distillery. Um, So I was was lucky that my grandmother held me at her arms and said, no. We talked about this briefly before. I mean, the the amount of coincidences and the the path that your career has taken have been phenomenal. But at each point, you've really been ready to capture every opportunity that's come your way. Uh, and you know these things don't happen just purely by luck. So you you were you were fortunate in the one sense that you had David Bell, I mean the longest serving Cooper, and the world at Beaumont to to start you off, and he, he very much took you under his wing. Absolutely, uh, he was a real Christian, he had a great sense of humour. He followed a football team called Partick Thistle, uh, which shows you how brave he was because they were absolutely rubbish. That's the same uh, team that uh, Dave Broom supports, I think. Is it? Yeah. And he's a New Hill man. They come from New Hill, Glasgow. So, yeah, Davey was, he was really, really good. He just didn't teach me coopering. He taught me a lot more about, 
being a decent guy and being honest and all that sort of stuff. And he was always there. Uh, he was a tough wee guy, you know. He came from Aberfoyle and he served in the First World War in a regiment called the Highland Light Infantry. So he saw death full on on a huge scale. So And he survived. So it was just a privilege and an honour to work for and with such a talented man. He was the number one Cooper in the world. What happens when you become a Cooper, you get a number. And as people retire from the craft, you move up or move down. The number goes down. And he was number one in the world for many, many years, the number one Cooper. Uh, what a privilege that was to work for such a man who had seen poverty, he had seen death in vast numbers, and he came to the island of Isla from Aberfoyle. He was working in the Cooperage in Glasgow. And he became a very much a staunch supporter in the community. He was a good Christian. I went to school. Uh, I went to church uh, every Sunday. So I could not have had a better teacher because I was a bit of a tear away, you know, so he kind of calmed me down a little bit. Did you need that? Did you need that, Jim? Did you need a moral compass or uh, somebody to... I think so, yeah, I think so. Uh, you know, and he, he was one of these guys who... He was a very sympathetic guy, you understand. He had a soft heart, you know, he could be quite tough on you. I remember uh, when I started in the Cooperage, I came from a very a very poor family, you must understand. I was brought up by my mum and my grand, and uh, I remember uh, when I went to work in the Cooperage in my first week, I didn't have a pair of working boots. All I had was a pair of what you call baseball boots. Now, you can't roll balls with baseball boots because they'll crush your feet, you understand, of the ball. Yeah. So when I got my first salary, which was five guineas, five pounds and five shillings, he took me down to the local shoe shop and uh, spoke to the man who owned it, a lovely guy called Robert Hoggison, and he said, get Jim a pair of boots and he'll come every week and he'll give you five shillings until they're paid. And it cost 21 shillings. So it was, uh, he was looking after me, not just as a creeper, but as a, like a son. Yeah. You know, yeah. Like a son. That's very much Ross in the movie. So, I mean, you started as a Cooper. How did you develop then? I, there's, a, there's a very poignant part in the movie. I don't want to give everything that happens in the movie away. So, Greg, if, if I overstep the mark, forgive me. But uh, there's a point in the movie where you're 22 and he gives you the keys to the distillery. Oh, man, that was, at that age, that was unbelievable. First of all, you've got to prove yourself that you're not a drinker because you're working amongst bottles of whiskey every day. Yeah. So I was never, ever a drinker. I enjoy a dram like the rest of the world enjoys a dram, but I was never a drinker. I never missed a day's work because of alcohol. Um, and... As I say, the day you're talking about, uh, I served my time. I was 21. I was a fully fledged uh, trooper. I could build bars. I could look after casts in the warehouse and all that sort of stuff. We were responsible for all the full casts in the warehousing. And uh, so he never warned me he was leaving. And uh, <clears throat> it was a Friday, and he came up to me. Everybody else was out the cooperage. We had our aprons on, our cooper's aprons. And he took my hand like that. And in his hand was the keys to all the warehouses in Bowmore Distillery. And he said, Jim, this is yours. It's your time now. And don't let me down. And I'm like 21. 
and I'm thinking, oh my God, I've got all these bars to look after in there and all that sort of stuff. He says, I'm off. He was about 73, 74 at that age. So you had to grow up quickly yeah. uh, at that time because you were responsible for all the bars and the maintenance of them and the filling of the barrels and all that sort of stuff. Yeah. But yeah, I enjoyed it. Yeah, well, you must have done. You spent 30, 38 years uh, in Bowmore, so I presume uh, yeah. you did enjoy it. But well, you were... I spent a lot of time in Glasgow. I trained as a blender. Right, okay. Yeah. So I was using my nose for the first time, and so I learned how to become a blender. And all whiskies are not equal in the eyes of a blender. You get first classes, second classes, third classes, and so on. So if you're making up a blend, which is malt and grain whiskey mixed, you don't want to use first-class malts in a blend. You want to keep the first-class malts to be sold as first-class yeah. malt. So you have to know to do, differentiate what's first-class and second-class and so on. That was very interesting. So I trained for three years to become a blender and use my nose and my palate and all that. So that was in Glasgow. Okay. But you were one of the, I suppose you were one of the first global brand ambassadors. You know, there was a point where you were spending 30 plus weeks a year on the road going around uh, yeah. all over the world, America, Hong Kong, Australia, all over. Yeah. Did you enjoy that? I did. Uh, I thoroughly enjoyed it. It was like uh, there was a, a willing audience out there to learn about. I was I would train sales teams. That was the primary purpose, you know. So yeah. anybody who was importing the whiskey from Mads, I would go out and train their salesmen. That was the first thing, and they would organise tastings for the best customers. So there was the training for the <clears throat> the whole company, our importers, and it was great fun uh, because. Most of the people hadn't a clue about single malt whiskey, particularly Beaumont, which was smoky. I remember going into Tokyo and Osaka and Yokohama and Kobe and all these places. And I would have, it was really quite funny because the Japanese hadn't really developed a nose or a palate for peated whiskey. And there would be rows and rows of salesmen and all sorts of people. And you could, I would watch them nosing it. And then they would taste it, and then they say, oh, yes, no, oh, oh, no, no. And this was it, you know, they didn't understand what they were drinking. So it was slowly but surely, uh, we won them over. Uh, there was myself, I think I was the only guy from Isla. There was Jim Cryle from Shivers Regal, Glenlivet. There's quite a few other Scotsmen out there, but yeah, it was very, very interesting. It wasn't really until the mid-'80s that malt whiskey came out. And again, Greg, you really portray that story about, you know, independent bottlers and single malls coming online. And you got to speak to a very famous David Campbell, amongst them, you know, in terms of talking about single malls and where they came in the market, because the market did go through a, a lull and then it picked up again. And uh, that story is very well told, explaining how the independent bottlers took to the rise and, you know, the, the small percentage of the market that was there. How much research did you actually have to do, Greg? Well, it, it depends what you mean by research. Do you mean this kind of research? <laughs> a lot. <laughs> that helps you the research. Uh, no, I, I did. I did it. I'm an avid reader. I always have been, and I just kind of immersed myself into it. Uh, um, you know, uh, for months, and 
I, I honestly, I lost track of how many books I read, but it wasn't just books. It was, you know, it, frankly, YouTube, to be honest with you, I watched loads and loads of videos of, of Jim on YouTube, of, of other people on YouTube, kind of getting the, the sense of their stories and um, how they were going to fit in our story, researching independent bottling. I mean, and we were lucky enough that what, what happened was the first time we met Jim, we, we sent a team over myself and uh, our one producer, Leslie Ann and our cameraman, Brad, and that was it. And then we shot little bits of stuff and started building the film off of that. And yeah. one of the places we went then was we went to Gordon McPhail for a day. And I really got a masterclass in, in wood uh, that day. And then the sort of the history of Gordon McPhail, but, but that really helped me kind of understand independent bottling. Cause it is a really unique phenomenon. Yeah. I can't, I can't think of any other industry in the world that has an equivalent of independent bottling in it. And, you know, and I've tried and I've asked lots of people when we did our interviews, we asked people and, you know, you know, no one ever had a specific, you know, there's no wine equivalent or beer equivalent of that, you know? Um, and so I think that really kind of helped. That was a big, the research kind of landed on me as opposed to me looking for it sometime in some cases, you know? Yeah. It must have been a difficult job trying all these whiskeys, Greg. It must have been murder for you. <laughs> <laughs> it was pretty brutal. I, you know, um, I, I'm sure the same for you, though. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I think has been doing it slightly longer, perhaps. But actually, that's just a, a quick a quick one there, Jim, about the mechanics of how you actually go and uh, nose and taste these whiskeys and do it in a way that doesn't leave you jaded. What, you know... As I say, fifty odd years in the business, and still have a, a passion and a hunger to be in the industry. There must be some techniques that you. you yeah, you, you've got, everybody's got their own style. Um, if you're working actually in a blending situation, uh, for example, when I was working in Glasgow, one of my jobs was the trucks were coming in from all over Scotland, uh, from the space side, from the north absolutely full of barrels, 70 barrels on. <clears throat> the barrels would be dropped off the track, the pumps would be pulled out, and you take a quick sample out of each cask and go, first class, second class. You, you, you would get so good. It was like tuning a piano. It's a first class, a second class. Because when you're making a blended whiskey, you don't want to spend a lot of money because they're going to mix it with grade whiskey. So first classes were set aside for single cask bottling. It's just practice, practice, practice. And uh, you've got to treat alcohol with respect, uh, particularly whiskey. You know, in that job, it's very, very easy to become alcoholic. Very, very easy because it's with you 24-7. You know, well, not 24-7, but it's with you all the day. All these trucks coming in. So you build it up. You build up your own vocabulary and your own sensory ability doing it every day. The secret is you just got to don't touch it. Just a little sip. I used to use my finger. I would just go like that. And I would just lick my lips. That was as much as I would do, um, one after the other. But generally, all whiskies are made superbly. There's not a bad distiller hardly in the world, but certainly not in Scotland. But the spirit is a child. And the child has to go to a good mother who has milk to survive. It's the same with whiskey. If you put good whiskey into a tired cask, it ain't going to mature. It's just going to sit there and do nothing. The oak has got nothing to get, so it'll sit there. So the quality of the cask is just so important. Unfortunately, yeah. as a cooper, I had a good idea about cask. I knew what a good cask was and it wasn't. So, <clears throat> so why everybody thinks all whiskies are equal, from a blender's point of view, they're not. There's three divisions, first, second, 
McCallan is a first division. Glenn Levitt is a first division and all that. Uh, so you, you categorise them uh, for Brendan. So you build up your own mental library. So you see a cask, uh, a distiller, you think, Crest, I hope it's a good cask. So it's the, the play between the spirit and the oak. It's that getting together, you know. So yeah. um, that's why cooperage is so important. Really, really important. I mean, I've seen great whiskies. Maybe 30 years old, you take a sample, it's almost clear. I've been in the wrong cask for 30 bloody years. What a waste, you know what I mean? I mean, that was one of the challenges that you had actually in Brooklady. So what made you so sure of joining Brooklady? I mean, there's a moment in the film that you say you're looking out over Brooklady and you say, wouldn't that make a great distillery? But, I mean, uh, I think it was John McTaggart gave you a call, Sir John McTaggart. John McLeod, gave you a call and said, do you want to... You didn't think about it very long. No. Uh, I used to, when I was coopering up a moor, I would get a phone call from the manager at, at Brooklady, uh, Mr. Peter Logie, super guy. Hard man, good businessman, good boss. And he was running Brooklady. And uh, what would happen, this, this is before the ferries came on. All the empty bars come in in small coastal vessels called puffers. Have you ever heard the name puffers? Yeah. They were bringing yeah. in coal to the island. They were bringing in barley to the island. They were bringing in everything to the island. And a lot of casks used to get damaged on the journey over or when the guys were taking them off the ship, they would just drop them in the ground and staves would shift. So I'd go over and fix them. And uh, I'd work on a Saturday and Sunday and some evenings up with Laddie fixing their cast. And I fell in love with the guys that were there. It was an old distillery, it was Victorian. The smells were just addictive in the stillhouse and all that. And um, and then when Laddie closed, it was a disaster for that part of the island. People people said Laddie was not a true isla because it wasn't peated. Yeah. What a load of bollocks that was. It's one of the most beautiful spirits ever created in the history of whiskey. And uh, so um, they closed Brooklady, people lost their jobs, the distillery fell into disrepair, and I used to look across the lock and think, ah, oh, Jesus, that's not fair, you know. So when Sir John asked me, uh, it took me about three seconds to say, yes, I'm coming. He said to me, do you not want to think about it? I said, I've been thinking about it for the last 12 years. So, I mean, it closed in 94, and I think uh, yeah. Mark and Sir John put the team together and it opened again in early 2001, was it? That's right, 2001. Yeah. Obviously, uh, Mark has been an adopted Irishman, and I'm sure he'd love to hear that, but uh, we'll play a clip here of Mark's philosophy uh, on whiskey and just get uh, people's a bit of a cross-section of the movie here as well. So, we'll play that. Here at Waterford, we've been running a series of tests on two sites, two different varieties of barley. We can identify and prove precisely exactly where our barley was grown, who by, how they grew it, what soil, when it was harvested, who harvested it, inside leg measurement of the guy that harvested it, absolutely everything. Obviously, Somebody you've worked, you spent a lot of time working with. I mean, Brooklady being bought by Mark and, and setting up the team to, to buy it, it, it is a whole story in itself. I mean, oh, fantastic, yeah. And the persistence, there are a couple of things that struck me. One, 
the coincidence that he won the bottle from uh, Jack Milroy. Yeah, yeah. Well, that was that was hugely coincidental, and then his persistence for ten years solid to to be chasing Beam for ten years to try and get the distillery, and eventually it came through. Uh, how did you get on with Mark initially, and what did you think uh, of this guy from the south of England coming up and telling us how to make scotch? No, he never did that. To be given his credit, he did not attempt to tell us how to make whiskey or tell us how to make gin. He was very, he was fantastic, a uh, very determined man, very quick on the trigger. You know him and I had many many battles, and we been this, you know because we we're both passionate about it, and uh, so we clashed many many times. But we're all we were in the same hymn sheet. We wanted to make Rothlady one of the great whiskies of Isla, one of the great Isla whiskies. We had to do that. Uh, because there was no history of Rufladi, even though it had been built, you know, since 1881. So we clashed quite often, but I was just like that, and then we'd go our separate ways. He knew what I was doing, and I knew what he was doing. Uh, so, as I say, it was quite stormy sometimes, but we were both heading in the same direction. We both knew what we wanted to make Rufladi a really superb distillery that could stand beside any whiskey in the world. We knew that. And we had to convince the world about that. And you can only do that by, for me to produce a great whiskey. And then yeah. they said, you know, you can only make one whiskey in one distillery. So I made Port Charlotte and yeah. I made Dr. Moore. So yeah. that, now everybody's doing that. They're in different style. So Mark yeah. and I had, uh, yeah, we had a fairly good relationship. We had a lot of battles, as I said earlier. But on the whole, we both had the same aim to make the Laddie number one. I mean, I, I keep on going on to, you know, the series of things that came into place to make this happen. So one, obviously, winning the bottle that got him interested in Brooklady and then his persistence, and then coming with you, in which there were two big personalities, both driven for success, and you seem to actually bounce off each other and drive the company forward. I mean, I, I highly doubt Brooklady would have become the success it had had a large multinational come in and bought over. I agree a hundred percent. And Simon Coughlin, who's Mark's partner yes. in London in the wine store, Simon was brilliant. He was a good pacifier between myself and Mark, and his, his knowledge of wine and Mark's knowledge of wine was great. Very good accountant. So Simon was there as well. So it wasn't just me and Mark. Simon yeah. was a kind of Simon was a kind of buffer between the two of us. He would see logic, um, but uh, yeah, we got along fine. We were both following the same dream, but from a different angle. Yeah. And well, I think that propelled everything forward. You know, sometimes it could actually be the demise of everything. In this case, it really propelled it forward. And then the other element of it that I, that I noticed, particularly in the movie, was that you inherited old stock that was dead. Yeah. So, and, 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 you know, a necessity and a smaller company led to the creativity for you guys to actually develop finishing wine casks and yeah. uh, the range of different casks. And again, I, that may not have happened had you had the resources of a big company. Well, with Mark and Simon's knowledge of wine, and they were bringing in the great wines from France, you know what I mean? Yeah. And when they first arrived, uh, I, I would be used to working with sherry casks because that's all the Scots did. It was bourbon or sherry, end yeah. of story. 
And then Mark started bringing in the great the Latours, the Lafitte, the Kems, the Barolo, Barbaresco, Sasakaya, Amaroni. He was getting them all. And I was putting, I was transferring from bourbon casks that were not very good, putting a whiskey into these wine casks. And the results were amazing. It was a yeah. whole new range of single malt. It was just some of the colours and the fruit flavours coming through, mixing with the oak. It was just, I mean, you shut a decay, my God, you can't get a better certain wine. You put the whiskey into it for six months and you've got a whole new product, a whole new yeah. product range. There's a question in here from Cask Chasers. Was it more difficult to figure out what to do with the old stock or what the new make would be like? Uh, it wasn't difficult to deal with the old stock. Uh, you just had to buy a new cask, so that was a new brainer, and give it more time. And, yeah, that, that was not difficult, and we did that. We bought a lot of fresh bourbon casks in. We bought stuff from Spain and a lot of wine casks from all over. And, no, it wasn't difficult at all. It was actually a pleasure to take a brilliant whiskey from my cask that's dead and put it into something alive again. It was a, you know, it was great. It was fantastic, and the results happened very quickly because the spirit was maturing. It lacked in colour, it lacked in flavour, it lacked in personality. The spirit was maturing, but it lacked these characters. So by recasting, we introduced that to the cast, to the spirit again. It was easy. What was the yeah. second part of that question? Well, uh, the second part was about what did you know or the new make. How, the new make. What was your decisions, and what was it like to? Develop the new make for, for Bloody? Ah, that was just a walk in the park. That was like winning the national lottery uh, because there was this consensus in the world of whiskey that Brofladi was not a true Isla because it wasn't peated. Do you ever hear such bullshit in your life? Uh, <clears throat> so I decided to make a heavy peated malt, about 40 parts per million, between 40 and 50, uh, and I made for Charlotte. That was on level with the rest of the islands. And then I thought, I'm going to shoot for the moon. I'm going to try and produce the most heavy peated malt the world has ever known. And I got the technique. I used to drive up to Glasgow and I'd stop in at a little fish shop just outside Inverary and I'd buy kippers. And I'd sit in there and the guy was smoking the kippers. There was no heat. You understand? It was just smoke that was smoke. Yeah. And uh, so I thought, and I, got, I had so much freedom. So I spoke to the maltster and I said, I'd like to make a really super heavy peated malt. He says, right, okay, that's not a problem. I said, but I want it to be higher than anything else. And, and I said, I just want you to put on small fires when, the, when the, <clears throat> the germinated barley, when the membrane is soft, so the peat can go right into the heart of the plant. Do you understand? Once you put on the heat, you seal it and the smoke can't get in. You follow me? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And uh, so I asked him to smoke it for three days. Normally smoking is 24 hours. So I asked him to smoke it for three days, just with very little heat. He says, it's going to cost a lot of money. I said, well, we'll just have to worry about that at a later stage. So we did it. And that was the creation of two more. And we went from the highest peaking level being about 40. The first batch we did went from a regular Isla 40 parts per million. We hit 168 parts per million. I mean, this was phenomenal. That changed the world forever. People couldn't believe it. 
And then the, the thought was, what will it taste like? Well, we'll just have to wait and see. So into the casket went. It was fabulous, fresh bourbon barrels, absolutely beautiful. You were getting the sweetness of the bourbon. You get the, the spice of the bourbon, the sweetness of the oak, and this smoke from Octomore and Porchala. People said it can't be done. Well, we've just done it. Was it important to try and push the boundaries, or were you just trying to prove them? Well, you you know, you were hearing the others saying, "Oh, you can't do this." You just wanted to prove them wrong. Or did you actually see merit in producing something that's it was, it was a bit of, I mean, it's crazy to think you've got a giant plant that can produce 4 million litres or 3 million or 2 million and you make the one product. For God's yeah. sake, when you have that capacity, why can you not make two products? Indeed, why can't you make three? And that helps with sales, you understand? It was such an obvious thing to do. So that's why we did it. Uh, and the rest is history. I mean, it was fantastic. And there, there's people out there, if you've never tasted and watching this show, if you've never tasted Octomola or Charlotte, it's just phenomenal, phenomenal whiskey. Yeah. Well, I've had the pleasure of trying both of them. And yeah. Strangely well. enough, the Octomore is, it does have a much higher PPM, but it doesn't kill the drink. I mean, it's not uncomfortable no, I, at all. Well, exactly. That comes from slow distillation as well, keeping the oil and the spirit, you know what I mean? Yeah. Not yeah. running your clothes fast. You want a lovely texture in your spirit, and that will absorb that smoke. You know, <clears throat> Sorry, the, the spirit will absorb that smoke, and it's just, it takes time, but it's worth it, you know? There's a question in here from Brittany. He says, can you tell us about the Lock and Doll whiskey? What was that and what happened to it? Well, there was a distillery in Port Charlotte which was closed down called Lock and Doll. And we had some plans to reopen that. So that, that's in Port Charlotte, one mile from Rothaddy, just down the road, okay? Yeah. So it was a well-known distillery, Lock and Doll, had a great water supply, and we were using the old buildings for storing barrels. So the buildings were still there, the water was still there, and I thought, well... Rather than build another distillery, why not resurrect Port Charlotte? Because everything's there. Critical thing is water supply, you know, cold water. So we, um, I did some trials up with Laddie of what I thought Port Charlotte would be like if we ever opened it. And it was absolutely fantastic. <clears throat> Just about 30 parts per million, while Port Charlotte was 40 parts, slightly lighter, and it turned out brilliant up with Laddie. So, I had the plan for a Portugalite distillery, which is called Lock and Dock. However, uh, due to circumstances, whether it be financial or whatever, uh, and we never, ever did it, but there was a distillery there, which I closed in 1921, so there was a history there. And I had a very good idea of what the whiskey tasted like. There was a lovely old man called Rudy McLeod, and he would pop into the distillery. He had been a stillman there for many years. And he liked a wee dram, you know. So he used to come up and see me, and I'd pour him a dram, and we'd have a chat about this and that and the weather. And I would say, um, Rudy, would you like a wee dram? And then he would play this game with me. Well, Jim, I'm not sure. Are you, would you like a dram, Rudy? Well, I'll need to think about it. And then he'd say, well, okay then. But he never said okay right away, you know what I mean? 
So and I said to him one day, I said, Rudy, can you remember the whiskey from Loch and Doll? Because he's an old man. And he put his hand on his chin and he says, well, Jim, uh, well, Jim, well, Jim, he said, uh, I, I can remember it. I said, could you tell me? Because I'm going to try and make it. He says, well, Jim, I can remember it. Well, could you give me another dram and maybe my memory will come, you know, Jim. So I gave him another dram and he, and he said, Jim, yes, uh, we'll tell you about Lock and Doll. He said, it was good. <laughs> oh, that was it. He finished his drum and he walked out the door and I'm thinking, shit, that was good. Oh, you were duped. Oh. You were duped. Well, maybe there's, there's a future in that distillery down the road. You never know. You know? Yeah. What was the reason that, uh, and, and when, of course, Brooklady came for sale and was sold, what were your feelings about it? And I know Mark had different feelings, possibly. Uh, but what were your feelings about the distillery being sold to, to Remy Quantro at the time? It was mixed feelings. Uh, I knew that Remy, because of the quality of their cognac, etc., were a company who knew all about quality. Remy are synonymous with quality. There's no doubt about that. They're also they were. A wealthy company, you know it and I know it. You just look at their packaging, their bottles are fabulous. There's nothing left. There's nothing cheap about Remy, the yeah. you know, blue chip company. And uh, we all we all went to France and we met with them. And it's very apparent from the very beginning that they would give Brucladi the same love as what they were doing for the cognac. It was there. They understood it. And uh, so Brucladi uh, needed... Uh, quite a lot of repair work and new stills and stuff like that. I needed some money spent on it and it was going to take a long time but to do that the way we were going, but we were doing fine. However, the shareholders decided they wanted to sell it to Remy. Yeah. And that was it. They all got a very good return on their shares. Myself, I would have been happy to carry on just the way it was, but there's nothing I can do to stop it. I'm, I'm not in that position. Uh, I was a production director, not a financial director, and but Remy have been absolutely phenomenal. So uh, they spent a lot of money in the bottling hall. When I started up with Laddie, there was me, two men, and a dog named Boo. Today, there's about eighty-five people working over there. That's eighty-five families. That's children going to the local school. That's keeping the local shop open. The economy of the west coast of Ireland is much improved. People have got cars now. 84 people working in that distillery bottled in Isla, using Isla water, 100% Isla. The Claddy is the real deal, but 84 jobs is significant. That was one of the things that struck me in the movie, actually, was when you did comment about it, the first comment you made about it was it secures the work for the people that are going to be there, and it gives them a good future. It means people don't have to leave the island. And so. That's it. You're very much a, a people-driven person and very much an instinctive person in, in your, your judgment of people and in your, your trust in people. So, I mean, again, you gave people an opportunity with, without really knowing them that well, you know. So you, you took on Alan and Adam, yeah. you know, just from a, a very – Casual conversation, if you know. Uh, okay, I think you might have uh, talked football to one of them, but that was it. 
Yeah. Well, Adam and Alan, on Isla, you know everybody, right? You know their family, you know where they've been to jail, and nobody goes from Isla goes to jail because we're not criminals. You know everything about them, which sometimes is a good thing and sometimes it's not. But I knew Alan from, I used to coach him at football, and yeah. he was a goalkeeper. A nice, quiet man, gentle. Uh, Adam, right as a button, very gentle man as well, quiet. We don't want bullies. The last thing you want is a boss that's kicking ass. You want people that can speak on equal terms to the workforce. And both these guys did the mashing, they did the stilling, they did the wares, and so they knew exactly how every part of the distillery worked. Yeah. And uh, as I say, Alan came from a family of distillers, but a gentle giant, one of the nicest people you could ever possibly meet, and a great distiller. Yeah. Adam was by my side when I was selecting casts all the time. I take samples and I nose the sample and I say, Adam, it needs another six months. Take a note of that. Adam, this one's ready. Take a note of that. So he was like my assistant in the warehouse and nosing and tasting and all that sort of stuff. He had done his mashing, done his distilling, I've learned it all. Yeah. So it's great to hand on to young guys because they were of some, some longevity. And they care. And the one thing that the common bond between these two guys is they're not boastful. I mean, I can talk the hind legs off a donkey, you know, but that's what you do when you're in the PR business. I mean, go around the bloody world trying to impress people. But these two guys had a nice quietness about them uh, and very sincere people. So they're glad it's in great hands. And I'm so proud of these guys because they were my boys. Yeah. And also, there was one other guy there who's no longer with us, probably the most important man of all. I was the late, great Duncan McGilvery, yeah. who had been the assistant manager. The most talented man I've ever met in terms of engineering mm-hmm. and knowledge of distilling. And I was so lucky. He was my running mate throughout my time at Rufladi. And uh, we had so much fun. He was the wittiest, cleverest guy, but... Duncan actually more or less rebuilt Rafadi by himself using old bits of pipe and welding and all that. So if there's any credit to be given to anybody. Mark got the money and I did my bit. And, but at the yeah. end of the day, it was Duncan McGilvery, Andy Allens and the Adams and a few other guys put that distillery back together again in some shape and form so that we could produce whiskey. And once we started producing whiskey, then the lights came on. We had a commodity. So uh, this interview would be not the same if I didn't mention Duncan because he was my right hand, my left hand. He was the beating heart of the flooding. Super guy. Yeah, I think, uh, and the movie does give it a slight nod to him, I think, as well, which was, which was nice. So a very witty man. He was so witty. He was, he was like a joy to work with. He really was a joy to work with. And he could tell you a lie. He would tell you a lie just like that. He would kid you on, you know what I mean? Okay. <laughs> One thing you did mention is you got a lot of freedom in Brooklady to be able to produce whatever you wanted, and you went on and you did the Black Art, you did the Octomore Poor Charlottes, and then I don't know how many releases of Brooklady there were, but there was one almost every couple of weeks. Did yeah. you, you know, what did you take away from Brooklady? And then when you did leave, was it a difficult decision to leave? Not really. My time was up. Um... And it's time to move over and give the young guys a chance. Um, the most significant thing I, I created was the botanist gin. Because gin, you make it today, you sell it tomorrow, right? 
So I traveled down to a gin distiller in Birmingham and I spent 10 days learning how to make gin. And uh, so I came back up and Mark knew about it, Simon knew about it, Truman knew about it. We were short of cash. If I can make gin, we can make it today, sell it tomorrow, but it must be a high quality gin. So I got the... <clears throat> when I was in Birmingham, I learned all about the botanicals. What's what we call the juniper, the coriander, the licorice, the aniseed, and what you all that sort of stuff. And the people in Birmingham were very good. They taught me well. Uh, I brought down about four cases of whiskey. That certainly helped them, but it helped me. <laughs> Never go into hand. Oh, by the way, I brought a whiskey for you. you know? Whiskey is the greatest currency in the world. I mean, it's better than the dollar. Yes. <laughs> I bought a whiskey, I'll get you in it. I'll take this in all. So the guys down there, I picked it up very quickly what they were doing. The whole thing about gin is the recipe. To give that unique taste, I had a good idea of what I was looking for. <clears throat> but the best bit was there was two botanists living on the island, lovely couple, Richard and Mavis. So I approached them and I said, look, I'm going to try and make some gin, and I want to use Isla Botanicals. Isla is probably one of the most beautiful islands for botanicals ever. And, and they came on board right away. Very, very qualified botanists. So I had my own recipe. I learned in, in, <coughs> in Birmingham the percentages, and I changed them to my own style. Uh, and the botanist went round. I said, John, my target was great. I was chairman. He owned a large chunk of land, so they could walk through there and pick the botanicals in season. I always say that the, the botanist gin is a <coughs> seasonal gin. It'll taste slightly different in the winter from the summer, you know, because of botanicals. And uh, I got an old still and set off to make gin and got it right first time. Bang. It just happened like that. And it came down. It was absolutely clear. Smell was amazing. Taste was amazing. That changed life for everybody at Rufladi. We now had a product made today, bottled tomorrow, on the ferry on Wednesday and hitting Europe in a week's time. The botanist gin gave us the wherewithal to improve the distillery, to get things fixed, and to get new plant and new equipment. But the key thing was <clears throat> the directors all agreed to bottle at Rufladi rather than sending tanks to a bottling plant in Glasgow. Do an Isla. That provides jobs for many people. And these people love working in the bottling hall. The atmosphere in the bottling hall is wonderful. You go in there and they're all happy. Um, so that was a, probably one of the most important moments in Rufladi's history, the creation of the gin, providing the cash to make more whiskey. Profit and what, the, what about the development of... Um or, or the redevelopment, if you like, of groin barley for distillation on Isle. Brooklady had a significant part to play in that. Yeah, we did, and uh, the directors were very much for it, and particularly Mark, he was really on board with that. He was about terroir. He's coming from the French side of it, the soil in France and Brittany and Bordeaux and all that sort of stuff. And I remember speaking to two farmers at the very beginning. This would be... Uh, probably about 2004, 2005, and asked them to grow barley for us. And they agreed, and slowly but surely most farmers came on board. Uh, and it was great for the farmers because <clears throat> it brought them an income guaranteed every year. 
Yeah. They were depending on sheep and cattle and all that stuff and veterinary bills and the whole lot. So I think there's probably about a dozen, maybe more. I don't know. If I'm, if I'm wrong, somebody could be right. I think there's probably about a dozen or more farmers growing barley on Isla. And it's fantastic when the, <clears throat> the season is right and it's harvest time. Isla is now where it was once het, Isla barley, where it was one head of the more. It's now barley fields, golden barley fields. So with employment yeah. in Islas, and that's families are getting salaries out of it. Farmers, you know, farmers are always struggling for cash. So the gin was a major, major move. And it's t- one of the top gins in the world now. You know, it really, really is. No, it's great to see what whiskey can mean to a community in terms of employment, but in terms of social life, in terms of employment and economy, it's fantastic. Just a quick one here again, Brittany. How excited were you when you met Jim for the first time? How did you manage to pretend you're keeping your cool? That's a bit of how I feel now as well. So, uh, <laughs> I won't. I'll never. I'll never admit. Um, I think. I think Jim. I think we met for the first time. I think at Ardna Ho. Did we not? That's right. Yeah. And uh, yeah, um, or maybe I can't. Uh, in either case, I know we'd spoken before. I may, I may have come to your house before we went and. And then I interviewed you at Arden Hall. Yeah, yeah. But it was, yeah, a, um, it was a great meeting because we all we hit it off right away. Yeah, and but I can yeah. see your vision. You were explaining very clearly what you were trying to do. I want to take this to the world, and you've done it great. I mean, all credit to you. You've done a phenomenal job on that. You've done a good job for Ireland, not just for Brathlady, on me or the people. You've done a great job for Isla. I wish to thank you for that because you've put Isla on the map. It was always on the map, but people had never seen it in the format <laughs> that you've produced. Some of the shots on the drones were just amazing. It's a beautiful movie. It really, really is. So thank you on behalf of all the people of Isla. Sincerely, thank you. Well, thank you. Um, you know, it's funny. Uh, I've learned when I go to do interviews now, I always try to take Fonzie with me because everyone always wants to talk about the drone shots. He's our drone pilot, Sergio. All right, okay. Yeah. Uh, and uh, he's he's great. And, uh, you know, and we we actually operated as two separate teams where the whole crew would go do our interviews and we would send him off Alphonse off on his own. To, we gave him a list every day of what to shoot on the drone. Yeah. And then every day we'd sit at the house and just watch the footage and we're just, you know, amazed. And it's just a whole new perspective on a place. You know, that's the yeah. thing about drones. That's great. That's really changed filmmaking is that, yeah, you, you, you know, like, like Jim, you've lived on Isla most of your life and you probably had never, or well, you've seen other drone shots, but I'm saying like, it's a whole new perspective on stuff you're used yeah. to. You've never seen it, but you know, and it was, it was, it really lent a huge amount to the film and we were really lucky to have it. But, um, yeah, but as far as, you know, meeting Jim, I mean, you know, I think we got along very well really quickly and therefore I think I got over any nerves I had. Yeah. Um, was there much convincing you know, I, to take part in the movie or was that pretty? Yeah. No, you know, I told this story the other day because Rachel McNeil was in one of our Q and A's from the Isle of Whiskey Academy. And, and the, here's how, here's how we found this is, this is, this is a great example of Isla. Um, I, I lived in Glasgow. One of my good friends, um, is a, a nurse in Glasgow and I had reached out to her and I said, I want to make this film. I want to do this. And she's, and I need to find, I need to be able to get a hold of Jim McEwen and I don't know how to do it. And she said, I went to nursing school with a woman from Isla. Let me, <laughs> let me see if she knows. Four hours later, I had Jim's phone number and email address. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> what was it that you wanted Jim more than anybody else? 
I'll tell you what, honestly, there are two things. One was Brooke Lottie, we knew we wanted to, we wanted to tell a story that had a lot of drama to it. We knew that Brooke Lottie had a ton of drama to it. Like for I'll give you an example. We feature Balvenie in the film and I'm a huge yes. Balvenie fan. I have a bottle of Balvenie sitting next to me. David Stewart is our guest tonight on our final night. Balvenie has never had any drama. I mean, it's been owned by the same family forever. That has an amazing stability. It's never been mothballed, you know, um, and that's, that's to their, t- that's, you know, to their credit. I and mean, that's not a criticism. That's, that's to their credit, but we wanted yeah. to tell a story that had a lot of rich human drama to it. And Brooke Lottie had been mothballed. And then the more we researched it, we realized how negatively it impacted the Island when it closed and whiskey was sort of, you know, our bag was also mothballed. Port Ellen was mothballed. Like, so that really kind of spoke to us as this, you know, had a big, you know, uh, a, a three act structure, if you will, built in. Yeah. And then the thing that really, really, the first day we met Jim, I will be a full credit to Leslie Ann. It wasn't me. It was not me. It was our producer, Leslie Ann, was standing there on the hill outside of Ardenho. And I was done with my questions. And Leslie Ann said to Jim, what do you think your legacy will be? And Jim didn't say Brooke Lottie or Bomore or Ardenho. He said, it's the hundred jobs that, the, the, it's the hundred families who live on Isla that wouldn't be here if we hadn't done what we had done. And at that yeah. moment, I knew I was like, that's the story. That's the, that is the way in. That's the, the, you know, this is because I think that's the human element of it, you know? Um, and that's, that's what transcends whiskey. That's the, I didn't want to make a film about how to make whiskey. I didn't, you know, I, I wanted to make a film about people and passion and craftsmanship. And that was when it all just, those tumblers all clicked into place at that moment. I mean, I, I think the one thing again, that comes out not only from the movie, but from having seen, uh, Jim give talks uh, mostly online. Uh, I, mean, I mean, there's a passion there that comes through in, in every sinew of his body. I mean, he feels it from his gut right the way through, and it just shows that it means so much to him. How do you keep that enthusiasm going, Jim, after 50 plus years in the business? Basically, uh, you fall in love, right? I met my wife when she was 14. And I'm not saying what age she is, but she's not 14 anymore. So it's a love affair. And it's like when you, you know, when you get into this distilling business, and it becomes a love affair because what you're doing, you're creating something that nobody else in the world is creating. How many people get that chance? Count them in one hand or two hands. I had the freedom up with Larry to create whatever I wanted. What a blessing. You know, Mark and Simon supported me all the time. It was really good. Alan and Adam delivered the business. And we went where no single malt had gone before, the Starship Enterprise, to go where no man has gone before. We were the Starship Enterprise, and they still are the Starship Enterprise. It was the freedom. But that Starship Enterprise and the story of the freedom and the story of the innovation and creativity was born out of not only the creativity and the passion that you have, but also out of necessity in some cases as well, and hardship. Well, as I say, when I very started this movie, when we went into Berkeley, we didn't have a pot to piss in. And uh, I look at it now, yeah. it's fantastic. But it's uh, a great team. I mean, I'm, I, my fellow islanders who work in distillers, they all know what I'm talking about. In fact, all the islanders, not just Isla, but there's something about living in an island that makes you slightly different, become slightly more confident, I think, and because you're living on an island and 
the same rules you abide by, you know everybody and all that sort of stuff. And you, everybody, I mean, God forbid, but when somebody dies on Ireland, there's so many people attend the funeral. And when the body is lowered into the grave, guess what we do? Yeah. We drink whiskey yeah. at the graveside. I mean, it's with us from birth to death. It's just yeah. part of our DNA. And we are so fortunate at this island. Yeah. There's, a, there's a point in the movie where, and you know, the, the movie could have been called The Cycle of Life in, a, in one sense, because there's a, there's a part in the movie where you uh, you hand over the reins to Adam in a very similar way to the way that the keys had been given to you by David exactly. Bell. One was a post-it and one was keys. But how did that feel, handing over the responsibility and well, saying goodbye to Brooklady? Yeah, well, Adam was in charge of the warehouses, and that's where the keys were for. Alan was running the whole shoot. But Adam was responsible for the casks and the filling and all that sort of stuff. And he used to be with me. He was every time I was losing casks, Adam would be by my side. And we were, we were making up different bottlings. I would create them and these boys would come in, the two of them, and I'd say, which sample do you want? There's five samples there. I'm creating a new product. Tell me which one you like. And yeah. <clears throat> we would come in and they'd choose it. And then I'd switch all the samples around and ask them to come back in. Tell me where it is. You know what I mean? Very simple. We don't need bloody computers. You've got a nose in your head and a tongue between your teeth. Nose and taste and move it again. And that's how you train them, you know. Find the same sample all the time. And Adam was particularly good at that. Adam was into the production side of it, the engineering side of it. So they're a great tag team, these two boys. Great, great tag team. And they're very nice guys as well. They're gentle guys, unlike me. They're, they're slightly quieter than you, Jim. Well, sometimes somebody's got to shout. And, I, and I've been this game a long time. Yeah. This has me been 57 years. And I will always be shouting about single more. I'll always be shouting about Isla. And I will always be shouting about Scotland. Because when you're in that position, whether it be New York or Tokyo, Osaka, Kobe, it doesn't matter. Seoul, Korea, going around the world, what am I doing? What am I talking about? I'm not talking about Rukhladi or Charlotte or Rockmore. I'm talking about Scotland and its whiskies. It's not just our whiskies. The great whiskies are out there. So I took that very, very seriously. If you don't like mine, you'll like something else because there's lots of good stuff up there. Have you tried Dunfartness or have you tried Balvini or have you tried, you know? So uh, that's how us whiskey guys feel. Uh, no, you are very much an ambassador for Scotland, not just... But in particular, of course, but but very much for Scotland and not only Scotch whisky. I think Scotland in 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 a broader sense as well. You know, from a tourism point of view, from cultural point of view, it's not only the whisky. Of course, whisky plays a huge part. But I think that's one of the the really nice things that you do as a brand ambassador for this group. Yeah. Well, as a um, gentleman. If, if I can interrupt for one moment, I'm, I'm, I'm actually, I'm, I'm loath to leave here, but I'm going to have to go in a moment. Our event starts and I need to be in our no, back no. room area in four minutes. <laughs> well, look, no, Greg, I, could, I could talk to you guys all night. I happily would. I'm sorry, but uh, my team will kill me. I've been getting loads of messages that they're expecting no, me. So Greg, well, we've, <laughs> we've done one hour, 10 minutes. We've been talking for one hour, 10 minutes. I know it flew by for me. It flew by for me. I, I, you know, I, I love your stories, Jim, and I could just listen to them all night. So, oh, it's been a pleasure having um, you. 
but I'll, I'll, I will let you guys, you know, wrap it up at your own leisure. Well, but Brad, I, I have look, to congratulations on a fantastic movie. Genuinely mean that it's a, it's a, it's a tearjerker. It's a, it's a optimistic movie, <laughs> but it's, it really gets into the the soul of humankind, I think. And uh, I look forward to your next movie, and I wish every success with this. And thank you for joining. Oh, us. hopefully, ho- hopefully, we'll come to Ireland and do one there. I mean, I mean that too. I know you and no, I have talked about it. Yeah, we'll, there's a nice tease. <laughs> thank you very thanks. much. Thanks All right. right. Thank you very thanks. much. Thanks. Take care. Well, Jim, it's just me and you now. I have you cornered for a little bit longer, do I? Because there's a lot of questions. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So there's one question in here from Colin Mayers. He's asking, do you think some of the resistance to considering terroir and whiskey is because of the use of a French and wine-related term? Uh, yeah, I think there would be some people would. this terroir is a French thing, but, I mean, the soil in Isla is different to the soil in the Highlands, as is different to the space side. We all know that. And the word terroir is, you know, it's much played upon. It's just a French word for the land. Uh, and we, we the truth, it's a good question, and the guy's quite right to ask it. Yeah, I can take, I can take samples of whiskey from before the farmers joined us, and I can take samples of whiskey after the farmers from while they joined us. There's a distinctive difference between the two spirits from the barley grown in Perthshire or up that way, and the stuff in Ireland. It's quite, quite different. Yeah. And I think, well, for, for Irish whiskey, certainly Mark is championing terroir. Yeah, he's doing a good job over there. He's doing yeah. a good job. Actually, well, that's a good, a good question perhaps to ask is, what do you think about Irish whiskey from Graham Fraser? Uh, well, judged it many times as a, an international judge. That was one of the, and I, I'm still looking at some of the stuff here. I mean, some of the names are great, like Royal Oak and Great Northern and Waterford and Ballykeel and Blackwater and Burren and Clonakilty and Dingle. I mean, there's now, I think, 24 distilleries that have been built in Ireland since, uh, since 2014. Since 24 yeah. distilleries since 2014. We're on the rise, but Irish whiskey is on the rise and rise. I mean, absolutely phenomenal. Yeah, uh, it's just amazing. I reckon. What do you think? Uh, what do you think Irish whiskey can learn from Scotch whiskey and Isla whiskey? What do you? What piece of advice would you, if you were to give to the new distillers starting here in Ireland? What one piece of advice could you give them that would be useful? Well, it's quite easy to answer, actually. You must buy. You must buy the best barley you can. You must buy the best hash you can. Because what you're doing, you're going to create a child. The spirit is the child, and the cask is the mother. Yeah, they've got to be together for at least ten years. Some whiskies get bottled at five, and all that sort of stuff. So the most important thing, really, they, they will all make good whiskey. If they don't make good whiskey, they'll be found out fairly soon. The con- the consumer is the judge. If it doesn't sell, it's not good. They may think it's good, but if they're not making the numbers because it doesn't taste right, it will die a natural death. Most people who come into the stunning industry have a good knowledge of the stunning. I mean, it's been around a long time, let's face it. The Egyptians started it to distill water so they could yeah. conquer the world. They took salt water and boiled it, caught it in sponges and wrung it out. And that's how they, 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 you know, that's how they conquered the world. 
no, I think the future is very, very good. And anybody that's making whiskey, we all know the quality of what the other guys do, and everybody's doing their very, very best. Making whiskey is easy. It's the cask that's important. You're making this spirit that's going into a cask. If the cask is tired or dead or whatever, it's never going to mature properly. So as a former cooper, I know the value of the cask. But there's nobody in Scotland, indeed Ireland, it's very, I haven't come across a poor whiskey for a long, long time. We're getting better and better and better. The stilling techniques are better than before. You can use gas gascomity now. Uh, this is to finish I'm just telling. Keep offering me more money, Barbara. I'm sorry. <laughs> oh, no, $2,500 Barbara. Uh, she says, I hope you're making money. Um, I think Irish whiskey is great. I've judged it. Uh, I've been a judge at International Wine Spirit Competition. I've been judging chairman at International Spirit Challenge. I've judged Irish whiskey for years. Absolutely terrific. Absolutely. It's got a big, big future. It's completely different to Scotch. Completely different. Yeah. You finished up in Brooklady and then you couldn't, uh, you couldn't sit in your laurels and relax. You started, uh, you started Ardenahoe. Well, I, you, you were involved in Ardenhoe. I was involved in the design. I wanted yeah. to make Ardenhoe slightly different. Uh, so the first thing I thought about making it different uh, was to put line Adams <coughs> into a warren tub. So yes. Ardenhoe is the only distillery in Ireland that uses a warren tub for <coughs> cooling the vapour. So that was, and they, they bought into it. The family were very good, the Lane family, absolutely fantastic. The designer who designed the distillery was great. I helped with the design of the stills. Um, yeah, it was a real a real treat to be involved in that. And when the first spirit came down the line, it was Fraser uh, Hughes and David Livingston, they were the two managers there. And we were standing there waiting on it. It's like being in a, a maternity ward. Your wife's in labour, and yeah. you think, oh, well, we get some whiskey off the first run. When's it coming? Is it this time or the next time? And it, it came <clears throat> after about the fourth run. We have to get low wines and our faints and all that. And it was just one of these great moments, having been in the whiskey industry a long time, to actually be a guy who's creating with the other boys, not just yeah. me, but team. And this spirit came down and it just cleared. And it's very simple. How do you know it's right? Well, there's no computers required. You take a sample in your glass. You add the water to it. If it remains clear, you have found the middle cut. If it goes cloudy, you have not found the middle cut. Why do we need computers when you can do it with your nose and your tongue and a little, a little bit of whiskey and, and, and uh, water in the glass? It's that simple. But it's that moment when it, when you put add the water to the sample from the spirit seed and it stays clear. It's like watching your children being born. It's like, oh, we've done it. Yeah, well, I mean, this one was an interesting one because you were involved from the very offset of this distillery. So that's Hunt playing in this, uh, independent bottlers that were involved in, in setting this up. But yeah, great company. You were there yeah. from day one with this, though. You were involved from day one with this. Yeah, 
Yeah, I wanted to make it slightly different. The site that the laying, Stuart Lang and his family uh, had bought was beautiful, overlooking overlooking the island of Jura. Uh, phenomenal site, probably one of the most beautiful sites in the world for a distillery. There's a loch right beside it. Everything was just perfect. So you've got to have a point of difference, you know, not all these stories the same. So uh, the still shape <coughs> the was classic still shape, but I wanted to do the longest line irons. That's the bit that comes off the top where the vapour runs along and put it into warm tubs, which is going back in time before we had the modern condensers. And the guys agreed to do it. And it was great. Slow distillation going through the warm tub and the cold water trickling in there. And I can remember clearly when adding the water to it, it was cloudy, adding water to spirit, with me, and then suddenly, bang. Yeah. It was like watching my first child be born again. This yeah. was just one of the great moments of life. I've been in lots of distilleries, but I've never, ever been in a distillery where it's made whiskey for the very first time. Bomo was 1779, but Laddie was 1881. So this was a great moment for me and the family, but particularly for myself. They were great to work with. Great yeah. team up there. It's going to be one of Isla's new giants. The spirit is absolutely sensational. I recommend well, I think that's the ninth, the ninth distillery on Isla now at the moment. So. That's right. Uh, it's yeah. absolutely well worth a visit. Really yeah. beautiful views. Uh, yeah. So a lot of these stories are really doing well. They're all doing, but most doing great. Magabula and Afroig are big. They are now top of the world in terms of whiskey terms, you know, uh, Kalila's doing great when I haven't. Probably one of the best whiskies I ever tasted in 57 years was a when I haven't. 30 years old. <clears throat> and uh, <clears throat> all of those are sherry casks. At 30 years, and all of it, it was just like, oh my, I, I'm going to die. Take me now, God. This is the yeah. best whiskey. That was when I haven't. Great spirit. Yeah. So I was doing They're very well. underrated when I haven't for some reason in, in terms of Mass appeal. I don't know why. It, it, it hasn't got the wide name going to that the, some of the other brands like from Islay do. Well, but yeah. is a non-peated, yeah. primarily yeah. non-peated, but they also do a peated one, uh, right. which is great as well. So they like Rathari, They can do peated or unpeated. Uh, it's a, one of the great whiskies of the world. Huge copper pot stills. Beautiful location. Good distillers. Uh, and it's all about the cask. As I, you know, as I said to you before, I mean, you, you can be a great distiller, but if you put in a cask that's dead, it's just totally wasting 10 years. You know, it's just So make the investment in the barrel day one, and that barrel can be filled again. So it's all about the cask. Good quality spirit. Once you get it right, don't change it. Uh, and actually did what we, at Bruchari, we made Bruchari, Kuchara, Optimore, Rock and Doll. We had that freedom, you know? <clears throat> yeah. Well, as, as if that wasn't enough, uh, Jim, then you decided to uh, make your way to the other side of the world and get involved yeah. in, in a project. Uh, and let's see where that is. Hold on. So this is Cape Byron uh, Distillery in yeah. Byron Bay, Australia. I said. <clears throat> yeah. So how did that come about? And when are they going to be producing and what are they going to be producing? Yeah. Uh, how did I get involved? Yes. Yeah. I, mean, I know Eddie, well, Eddie used to work with you, Eddie Brooke. He was, when I was doing, uh, when I was traveling big time, 
uh, he would be my tour manager. So I'd be going to all the cities and, <clears throat> and throughout Australia, or just everywhere, doing tastings and teaching and tasting. And Eddie was responsible for my hotels, my flights, the whole lot, and he assisted me throughout. Absolutely fabulous guy, really, really fabulous. The whole family's great, you know, his dad and mom and his brother. Yeah. Just great, great people, so, so kind, and they were very, very good to me. And uh, they had this beautiful piece of land quite close to Byron Bay, and there's all this, you can see the pictures, tropical forest and all that stuff, and Eddie was telling me stories about it. And we were sitting having a cup of drums one night and said, why don't you make a distillery? Have you got water? He said, yeah, we've got the water, we've got everything, you know. So that kicked it off, and uh, they got the still made in Tasmania. There's a guy down there, a German guy making stills in Tasmania. That yeah. was great. <clears throat> got the foundations done. Of course, it's very, very hot there, uh, so there's going to be a lot of evaporation from the cask, but it'll mature very quickly. And so uh, we got the still shipped over from Tasmania, got it in, got it going. I only had uh, one still to work with, so I had to do the wash distillation and, and, and empty the still and do the low winds and faints in the same still. So it was very, very difficult. Uh, and that's all changed now, a new boiler and all that. But once again, it's that magic moment when you get the middle cut coming down the line. And oh my God, it was just sensational, absolutely sensational spirit. One of the finest spirits we've ever made. You can see the shape of the still. You see the the box and the neck of the still. You see yeah, the picture. Very sharp, yeah. We also made gin, Byron Bay gin. And, oh, okay. and that, yeah. um, I put botanicals in that box. Yeah, they go into a little basket bag or something. And then it's bag in there, yeah. And also inside the still, we put the botanicals in that <clears throat> basket, botanical basket, and inside the still, I got them to put four hooks hanging from the shoulders of the still. And what we were doing is special bags that could stand the heat. And we put, I call them Babylon bags, because that's where the stuff from the gardens are coming, the, you know, the Babylon bags, the gardens, uh, all the different plants. We put them in just above the boil. So when the still was boiling, the bags were filled with all the botanicals from the rainforest. It's yeah. just an abundance, and it's seasonal. So it must be so different, then, so different to the one that you made in uh, in Islay. Oh yeah, T totally different. Absolutely different botanicals. Uh, still the same base. The main thing with gin is juniper, coriander, licorice, aniseed. They're the big players. But yes. it's the subtle stuff. The stuff in Isla was completely different to the Byron Bay. You can imagine the temperature down there. So it's yeah. always a bit nerve-wracking when you're waiting and coming through the first time. So I never thought of this before, but I put the hooks inside so the alcohol is boiling. Lots and lots of botanicals in the Babylon bags. As the vapour is rising, it's going through these bags and stripping out the, the aromas and the flavour and the texture. And it worked a treat. Absolutely beautiful. So that was great. We've got the Byron Bay Gin, which is one of the top sellers, uh, particularly on the Gold Coast, which is a surfer's paradise, and drink a lot of gin. Yeah. And then we thought, well, why don't we make some whiskey? And I went down there and made some whiskey, and it was good. In fact, it was great. Um, and because of the heat down there, the maturation is going to be super quick, as I said to you a few moments ago. 
uh, that'll be ready for drinking at three years and it'll taste like a five-year-old or a six-year-old. So uh, there's a lot of people employed there now. I think we've got 80 people working and they do the bottling there, the labeling, the packaging, and it's a family. It's an amazing story, yeah. It's an amazing story. This photo isn't of you in Islay, that's for sure. <laughs> No, that's just outside the distillery, which I, I fell in love with. It. Uh, I would just, in the evening, I would just wander off myself. And I would always ask, my, there was one huge stone uh, in the middle of the forest. I'd wander in there, exhausted at the end of the day. And I was just sitting this stone. Not, you don't see it there. And I would say to myself, I was missing my family, missing my wife and all that. I was there a long time. And... Uh, I'm uh, in this paradise, and I'm asking myself the question, Jim McEwen, where did it all go wrong for you? <laughs> well, here, here's a question I was about to ask, actually, and this is Aaron Pross, and he's saying, does Jim ever intend to retire fully? Does he think he will continue to distill, consult, experiment, and push the envelope forever and ever? Amen. Uh, I would like to thank... I will retire soon. Really. I, I've been hearing that uh, for a very long time, uh, Jim. But uh... well, I, the fact of the matter is, I'm still enjoying it. Yes, this is Obviously. not work. Uh, yeah. if, you know, if you if you're not enjoying it, don't do it. I've got a very understanding wife. Uh, we've been together since she was 14 and I was 16, so we know each other quite well now. Um, I can't answer that question, Aaron or Alan. I can't answer that question. Right now, I'm feeling good. Uh, should I not feel well? I'm always happy to talk to people. And, and I write tasting notes for all sorts of people and never get paid for it. Uh, not that I want to. I'm quite happy to promote the product and all that sort of stuff. So I think I'll always be doing something until they put me in the box, you know? Yeah. I mean, it's evident. I'm not, I'm not, sorry, I'm not going for creation, uh, cremation, because it'd be too quick. All the alcohol <laughs> I've got inside me, it'd be two seconds, it was all over. But you are engaging, or you have engaged in another project, and we're going to see the fruits of that over the next couple of months. So you have engaged and created a, a book that will be coming out later on in Germany in a, in a couple of months' yeah. time. That's right. It's called uh, uh, Journeyman's Journey. A journeyman is another, it's the old name for a tradesman. And uh, I, I found it very, very difficult. I found it extremely emotional walking back through my life and putting it, breaking it down. Uh, my wife, Barbara, was superb. She did a lot of typing and all that sort of stuff. And, and once you make, once you start that journey, lots of things you hadn't thought about for a long, long time come into your head. And people you hadn't thought about for a long, long time come into your head and suddenly the journey takes longer because you want to mention them, you understand, yeah. because they were significant in my life. And I yeah. found that so emotional sometimes. I'm almost in tears talking about my own story, you know, but it's not me I'm talking about. I'm talking about the people who helped me and treated me with respect. And, uh, but you're very, you're, you're incredibly generous of your praise for those people and incredibly grateful i i can see yeah, the opportunities that they've given you uh, and you get very emotional about it and, yeah. and i think that reflects in the whiskey that you produce you know i know that the basic ingredients are the three basic ingredients but without a bit of passion a bit of love and a bit of emotion what's whiskey you know exactly exactly it's a, a drink to be enjoyed so yeah i'm doing the book uh i've signed up by a wonderful german company 
and they get it. They understand it. And yeah. I've got a translator here who lives in Beaumont, so we go through it and help with them with the translation of the words and all that stuff. It's going to be a beautiful book. They're using the top paper. It's going to have a leather brown colour. Uh, we're going to produce a special whiskey um, as well to go with the book. Oh, fantastic. Uh, so it should be launching, I would reckon, probably after the summer, September, October, maybe before then, I don't know. Do we expect to see that in English as well soon? Yeah, definitely. The first edition is going to be, the first print is going to be in German, and it's going to come out in English as well. And I yeah. found that hell of a emotional. It's okay talking to a camera with people like you, Sergio, but when you're going down and you think back in some of the hard times in life, and you know, and you got to get it out. Yeah. And put it into writing, you know, some of the stuff you'd never have told anyone for whatever reason. Yeah. Because you're not proud of it or the circumstances or whatever. Uh, I found it difficult, very, very emotional, but I did it anyway. Yeah. I, I just went, open your soul and say, this is me. Well, the power of the written word is something very special. Um, you know, I don't know. It's like black and white photography and color photography. You know, black yeah. and white kind of invokes something that, and, and writing something down and, and you know, it's a physical activity that relates to something. It's less passive, I think. But yeah. So, what's for the future after after this? You're in, you, I mean, you have an incredible energy. Uh, I mean, we were talking earlier with a friend of mine. Okay. In the I'm looking at some of the con, con <coughs> mail coming in, and somebody's come in uh, and said, um, "Greg Swartz, you can continue with Jim if need be." And Irish Whiskey Magazine said he could go on all night. And Greg, oh, Swartz, yeah. and Greg Swartz says he will. Yeah. Great nice to that swine, I tell you. Yeah. I'm leaving this down. I was complaining. I will go on. I'm talking too long. So Greg's saying it's time to wrap it, I think. I think anyway. we should wrap it. Yeah, I think we'll wrap it. What I'd like to do, if I... What was that last question? Sorry. What's in store for you next? Uh, to spend more time, I think, with my grandchildren and my children. Once this COVID is over, because we haven't seen them, we're just Skyping because they live in the mainland, so we haven't, I haven't heard of my grandchildren since COVID started. And so, uh, and we're come, coming up to my golden wedding anniversary, so we're going to get the whole clan together. Brilliant. Uh, and that's going to be amazing. Uh, so I've been very, very fortunate, and my choice of wife, Barbara's been outstanding you know we've been married now for 50 years almost and i would say with her she she was she was the star of the show she wasn't me she put up with all the travel bringing the kids up herself you know me coming home exhausted and jet lagged and all that stuff so i would without her i would have achieved nothing nothing well that's very generous of you and, and look i think what i wanted to do was actually end the end the show i want to play a little clip then we have a quick chat. There's a nice clip here from the movie I'd, I'd like to play. Sure. And we won't keep you long. So. No, you're okay. I'm okay. We don't want Greg to be... So I think this is quite apt. Therefore, you have on safe face. Great chieftain of the prudent race. Abin the ma, ye tack your place. Pinch, tripe, or thern. Weel, were you worthy of a grace as lang's my arm? The groaning trencher there ye fill, your hurdies like a distant hill, 
Your pin would help to mend a mill in time of need, well through your pores that used to still like amber bead. His knife see rustic labour dight, and cut you up with any slight, trenching your gushing entrails bright like only ditch. And then, oh, what a glorious sight, warm, reeking, rich. Horn for horn they stretch and strive, deal tag the hindmost on they drive, till a their wheel swelled kites belive are bent like drums. The old good man may's like to arrive, bethink it hums. Is there that o'er his French ragout, or only o' that would staw a sou, or fricassee would macker spew with perfect scunner? Looks doon with sneering scornful view on sick a dinner. Poor devil, see him o'er his trash, as feckless as a withered rash, his spindle shank a good whip lash, his knee a knit, through bloody flood or field to dash, oh how unfit. But mark the rustic haggis fed, the trembling earth resounds his tread, clapping his wally neve a blade he'll mack it whistle, and legs and arms and heads will sned like taps of thristle. Ye powers wa mak mankind your care, and dish em out their bill of fare. Old Scotland wants nae skinkin wear that jopes and luggies. But if ye wish her grateful prayer, here a haggis. I'm sure you never tired of hearing that one, uh, Jim. Oh, that was wonderful. That, that was beautiful. Really, really beautiful, Sergio. It was fantastic. Yeah, great shots. Well, you know, it's a fantastic movie. It was told by a fantastic director, and it started a fantastic centerpiece and a great ambassador for Eileen, for Scotch whiskey, for whiskey worldwide, actually, because, you know, you are a legend and you are so highly respected in the, in the industry. And for me, yeah, the whiskies are fantastic, don't get me wrong, but the, the human stories, uh, the respect you have for your, your, your co-workers and those that brought you to where you are, uh, and of the island and the pride that you show for the island, that's just so engaging and really human story that whiskey helps us transcend so thank you for coming on the show i don't know if you want to end on any note in particular but uh it's been an honor to have you on the show we're kind of blown away that you take the time to be on with us well sergio i would like to thank you for inviting me on uh it's been i've loved working with you uh and i mean this isn't work jim i hope I know, I'm sorry, I enjoyed the discussion with you because there was an empathy between us, you know, understand that maybe that Celtic blood, you being Irish and me being that Celtic Scot, I don't yeah. know, but I think part of that is because we're so emotional, you know what I mean? It's just something to do with maybe born on an island, I don't know. Yeah. Uh, <clears throat> uh, I, As I said to you from the very start, without my wife, Barbara, supporting me, I would have done nothing, that's for sure. She was a wind beneath my wings. And I am truly grateful. 
and she's not standing behind me with a gun that can assure you. You know, uh, Mr. Dick, well, we'll drink, we'll drink to your wife. So, Slanjava. Slanjava. Wish you good health and every success. And thank you so much, as I said. For Come and see me. Come we and see will be there as the first opportunity. The bloody COVID and we'll, we'll make a trip over. You'll be made, you'll be made most, welcome, most welcome, and I'll take you around the distilleries and you can see them yourself and make a nice. Uh, if you reciprocate the favor by coming over here at some point, that would be fantastic. I'd love to do that. That's, yeah. a, that's a deal, okay? That's a, that deal. a deal. Okay, Sergio, so, thank you. It's been my pleasure. Uh, it's been an honor. Thank you very much. Slanjava. Take care. Bye-bye. 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 Thank you. Well, well, I hope you enjoyed that as much as I did. It is an honour and a dream come true to speak to people of, of that calibre. Even if they're Scottish, you know, um, whiskey just brings different people together. So thank you very much for joining us. If you have enjoyed it, please do leave a comment in the, in the comment section and do subscribe to our channel. And if you have any questions going forward or any suggestions for how can we can improve the show, please do let us know. And Sanchevato, all of you, thank you for joining us and we'll see you next week. God bless. Bye-bye.